0: welcome to the entrepreneur's mba bringing you lessons from real life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school here's your host business coach and marketing strategist adam Kipness. as a business owner we need to be cognizant of what's going on in our marketplace what are the trends that are happening what are the what's our competition doing what are our buyers doing how can we always stay ahead of the curve to make the business run smoothly? But one of the things that we often miss that's just as important because it can change your business is understanding what's going on socially, what's going on in the culture, what's going on in the community that you live in. As a business owner, you are visible. You are a leader. Even if people or you don't think of yourself as leading a community, as a business owner, you are leading a community. You have people that follow you. And how do you stay ahead of what's going on? How do you adapt to what's going on in the environment? We're going to talk about that today and how you can think about your your business differently and think about your business socially, not just economically. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. I appreciate you being here today. We are sponsored in part by C-Suite Radio, my great friends over there, as well as Network Together, online. Business networking all across the country. They've got great events. Go to ntevents.com and you can join, or sorry, ntevents.net, and you can join those events and meet more people to help your business and help you learn and grow. My guest today has an awesome background, a varied background, learned a lot, and we're going to learn a lot from him. Anton Gunn, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, Adam. Great to be with you. I want to dig
0: into, into what you're doing today. But obviously, what you're doing today started somewhere. And growing up, you played football. You played college football in the SEC, which is the cream of the crop. You were the first African-American state legislator in uh, the state of South Carolina. You worked for President Obama. All of those things were the, the top of your profession. How did that start? Where did that start for you?
1: Um, so it all started with me um, with hip-hop music and culture and I know it's an unconventional place to start but I will tell you that um, um, leadership is what I do but hip-hop is who I am that's actually where my entrepreneurial uh, focus came from is is watching that entire industry be born um, at the same time that I was born and so um, so whether it was hustling uh, mixtapes out of the back of the car or uh, trying to get people to give me five cents or ten cents or a dollar for breakdancing on the corner, I mean, I was always focused on my hustle. And I, that's how I kind of grew up, is just, just finding a way um, to make a dollar where there wasn't a dollar. And And the music also shaped me mentally. It shaped me emotionally. It gave me a sense of, a pride about who I was and a pride about what I could do. And I tell people all the time, it was a, a hip hop group called Public Enemy. Chuck D, who is a world famous, you know, rock and roll hall of fame musician now. Uh, he was interviewed in 1990 and they asked him a question. They said, Chuck, you know, is your goal to go platinum and sell 5 million records and make a lot of money? He said, no. He said, my goal is to create 5,000 new black leaders in my community, people who are going to make a difference. And even though I was hustling, uh, doing good positive hustles, so and I wasn't selling drugs or anything, but I was making music and trying to become a rapper. But when Chuck D spoke those words, I said, listen, I wanna be a community leader that makes a difference in people's lives. And that literally has been the driving force that has channeled me uh, into my current business model and what I do for clients and organizations today.
0: Interesting way to start. I didn't, I knew that, but I didn't know that's where you were going to go. So, so let's go on that. As you, as you were out there and making change by being, by through your music and through the, a a cultural aspect, how did you marry business with culture, right? It's one thing to go out there and be a leader in the community, but it's a, it's a very different thing to turn it into a business. When did that begin to happen for you?
1: So it, it began to happen for me, um, everything happens by, by what you see. And I think one of the, the strongest standpoints that any entrepreneur or any business owner should be is to watch the landscape and watch the marketplace. And what I remember, and I remember it as if it was yesterday, I was sitting at home with my brothers. We had a boom box in the living room, um, playing our hip hop tapes as we always do on Saturday morning. And literally, I see a Fruity Pebbles commercial come on television. And it's Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble with a gold chain around their neck and hats on their head like Run DMC. And Barney is talking about, I love Fruity Pebbles in a major way. He was literally rhyming. And so what is said to me is that my culture is now being turned into Uh, a way to get business and because for me I I would have never paid attention to it any way shape or form unless it was connected to hip-hop and so what I started to see is that there were the tea leaves were that the entire country was finding a way to monetize youth culture and when I mean monetize youth culture um youth culture is, is I mean think about millennials today they're the largest consumer on the planet earth that generation of consumers and so as a business If you don't find a way to reach them, communicate with them, connect with their value system, then you might have a brand and you might have a product, but you won't do as well as anyone that connects to their culture. And so I saw in the late 1980s business really trying to connect with um, the hip hop culture. And I said, well, if they can use this to make money, then I know I can use it to make change because business drives change everywhere we go. People, listen to business leaders, they listen to leaders. And so for me, I saw them all as as one and the same as a part of a continuum. And I know that the best businesses are the ones who really know their customers. So how do you you personify your customer in terms of what they think about, what they care about, what's important to them? What do they like? What do they read? What are they listening to? And so even though you might be selling workout equipment, you're still envisioning what is my customer listening to when they work out in the gym? So when you do your ad, are you playing music that, they would, that would connect to them and make them feel the full experience? Car commercials, it doesn't matter what you're selling, you gotta build that experience for your customer and that means you have to understand what's important to your customer. And that's something that I was able to pick up on as a teenager and uh, have used it in all aspects of my work, even working with Barack Obama. And
0: when, when you're talking about talking to your customer, right? Customer bases vary. There is the, the concept of the ideal customer, the person that we're targeting, but if we over-target and we only go to one particular customer, we can uh, shortchange our business, shortchange the people that we're trying to serve. How do you, in, in your work with clients and, and in your own business and life, make sure you don't sort of overcorrect or over-target a, a particular customer and be open to a wide variety of people, but still speaking to them individually?
1: Yeah, so that's where my philosophy probably differs from uh, most business owners and most entrepreneurs. There's a phrase that one of my mentors, his name is Walter Bond, uses. And the phrase is, their riches are in the niches. The riches are in the niches. And so the, the context is, you don't have to sell everything to everybody. But if you find your niche and you find a place to dive deep into that niche, uh, you can do very, very well. So I'll give you an example. Um, I've been a speaker for about 17 years. I help uh, leaders in organizations build a world-class culture. And so there are all kinds of organizations. You got big corporations, you got small mom and pop businesses. Well, I know my sweet spot are companies that have at least a thousand employees or more. So right there, I've taken a whole bunch of people off the table as a particular customer base for me, just removing any company that has less than a thousand employees. Now, I also know that there are hundreds and thousands of corporations that have more than a thousand employees. So there's a lot. And so I could service all of them, but I could still overwhelm myself. But I I then further narrow to niche and say, listen, because I have such large background in the business of healthcare. And I understand the business from a physician standpoint, all the way to an insurance company standpoint and everything in between. So let me think about the healthcare industry alone. Well, healthcare is about 18% of GDP. So when you think about, you know, a sixth of the U S economy, that's a huge industry. There's more money there than anybody could ever count in just that one industry. So then I further niche and say, you know what, I could talk to insurance companies, I could also talk to physician practices, but if I think about who has a thousand employees that have the biggest impact on the lives of millions of people that I really wanna help, it is hospitals. Hospitals generally, even the small hospitals in a rural community may have 900 to thousand employees without even counting the physicians. So if I just focused only on hospitals and I looked right now and just did a Google search for how many hospitals in the United States of America, You will find there are nearly 5,700 hospitals in America. So, how many customers do I actually need in order for me to achieve my revenue goals, to take care of my shareholders, to take care of my investors? Well, for me, I know I only need 100 at my price point. So, in that regard, if I focus only on hospitals and only in healthcare and only in the healthcare industry, about all the 1,000 you know, employee plus organizations in the world. If I got a hundred customers, I wouldn't even scratch. I wouldn't even scratch 20% of the market. And I could, it, it'll take me the next 50 years before I cycle through all of the potential customers. So I don't see that as an overcorrection. I just see that as clarity around who gets the best value. But here's my main point, And I'll, I'll close with this point is that even if I did focus on that niche customer, my product is applicable and valuable to every customer in every industry that has more than a thousand employees. So I could end up servicing 10 times the amount of customers, but I made the decision that I'm going to drive the most value for the customer who I think is going to get the biggest benefit and feel like they're getting the most value from me as a thought partner and as an organizational partner with them. And so for me, It's just really being clear. It's like knowing, you know, who your customer is, what they like to eat for breakfast, even though you may not be selling them breakfast, breakfast food, what do they like for breakfast? You know, where do they shop? Um, what kind of car do they drive and how many children do they have? So I really try to do as much market research as possible to fully understand who my customer is, because then that allows me the opportunity to be able to service them and and really connect with them at the deepest level possible. Because we know customer retention is probably the most important thing that you want to do is when you get a customer, you want to keep that customer coming back, and that's what you can do when you understand intimately who they are. And I find that to be in the niches.
0: I love that you took it in that direction, and it's, and when you serve your service your customers, especially you know with over a th- businesses with over a thousand people, they have customers, and so you're by by default serving their customers and their clientele. through through serving yours. And it's the reason I love that you took it this way is part of what I do in strategic planning for businesses is getting really clear on who they are serving. And I'm a big believer that you don't find niches, niches find you. So if you know who's already benefiting and then target, and we did this with a my partner and I did this with a client recently. And They didn't really get it they were still going really broad and really broad because they wanted to to help more and more people when we finally got them to the point of understanding they came to us separately and they said oh we figured out something else about our customer he pulls out the chair for for people he opens doors for people when he goes into buildings he's a good tipper he's respectful of wait staff in in restaurants is that what you're talking about getting to that level where you can you know how they act and behave, not just what they buy and what they do, correct?
1: Exactly. That's exactly the point that you really have to understand their behaviors. What, what are their hopes and dreams? What are their desires? What's their value system that they bring to the world? You know. So when I think about my customer, it might be hospitals, but in that hospital, there's a buyer. So my buyer has to have a profile. So who is the decision maker that I need to get in front of And what does that decision-maker think about every day? What do they care about? What are their value systems? So I know my decision-maker is a woman. Uh, This woman loves college football. That's why she spent most of her life in the South. That I know she goes to church, and she's a part of a women's group at church, and she really believes in the value of developing other young women professionally. And she's actually sometimes subconscious about the decisions that she's made in her career because she chose her career over her family, It cost her her marriage, but now um, she's now trying to reinvest in her children. So I, I literally even write down her children's names, their ages. I really give it a full scale persona because I want to understand this archetype of a person that when I market to them, when I, you know, send my brochure out and when I send that email, when I craft this video course or this video message that I'm talking to her. I'm not talking to everybody else, but I'm talking to her. And when I talk to her, she is going to hear and understand everything that I'm saying. But again, the clarity for me is that's my customer, but it is also applicable to so many other people. And these are the things that I think we we all in business as we think about um, how we wanna serve our customers and make the biggest difference and, and have a great impact is that we gotta understand what that full impact can look like and we gotta know who they are in order to be able to do that.
0: I love it. I love it. It's so important for businesses to do. And many times, many businesses don't think enough about the customer. They think about the dollars. So I appreciate you, you bringing that to us. But I want to turn it around a little bit in the political sphere. When you are running for state legislature, you need a broader swath of people to vote for you in order to get you know that, that 50.1% or that one person more than, than your competitor how did you think about your campaign from a customer perspective, from a voter perspective, yeah, from so a culture perspective?
1: Yeah, so that's a great, great question. And I, I use a lot of these same principles um, when I got into politics. And so first, let me tell you the honest truth. The first time I ran for office, I lost because I wrote off a whole group of customers, okay? A, a whole target audience. And so- You know, running for office in the South, it's very partisan in general, and everywhere is very partisan today, but in the South, it was really partisan. And, you know, I represented a district that had partly a rural county, and another part was a suburban county. And because I lived in the suburbs, you know, middle class, couple college degrees, you know, two kids, dog, those kind of communities, I identified with them much more easily than I did with the folks on the other side of the district that were rural, that were farmers, maybe didn't have college education, maybe they worked in a factory um, or a plant of some sort, maybe worked at a local Walmart. And I felt like I didn't have anything in common with those folks. So let me focus on the people that I have the best um, similar experiences with. And if I can get all of them to vote for me, maybe this other group of customers won't matter. And at the end of my first election, I lost by 298 votes. I lost very narrowly. And I learned something um, that I encountered a gentleman in one of those rural precincts that first time I ran, who basically said, Anton, I wanted to vote for you, but you never came over here and talked to us. You never came into our neighborhoods, our communities, and I wanted to vote for you because I looked you up online and I liked what you were saying and what you were selling, but you didn't ask me to buy. Now, think about this from a business standpoint. How foolish would it be for you to make a great product, provide a great service, and you never asked your customer to buy? You just kind of says, hey, I make great products, or I'm a great person to, to do work with, but you never asked them to do business with you. That's where I failed the first time that I ran for office. And so the second time around, I began to spend more time trying to understand that part of my district and not even taking for granted the part of the district that I won heavily in, but looking at the whole district in total, what do I have in common with these people? How, how can we figure out what we might agree on? And there may be things that we don't agree on, but what can we spend our time talking about that we agree on and at least make them tell me no. So I have to ask them to tell me no. And to use one of the most famous uh, salesman in the history of sales is Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar would tell you he got excited every time somebody told him no, because that means he was just getting closer to a yes. And when you're running for office, what you have to count above all else are the yeses and the noes. You have to count the number of people who said, yes, I will vote for you. And you also have to count the number of people who say, no, I won't vote for you and what you want is disposition more than anything else. You don't want anybody out there in maybe land or unknown, I'm not sure if they like me or not. You wanna get disposition, yes or no. So the second time around I ran, I built my operation completely differently. I started going into the rural areas early and first and trying to meet and build relationships with people and figure out um, who likes me, who didn't like me. And for the people who liked me, I wanted to make sure that they understood everything about me because I knew they would be the best sales reps that I could ever have. Because people might trust me a little bit of the way, but they trust people that they know personally more. And so for me, taking care of my volunteers, supporting my volunteers, um, uh, giving them all of the tools that they need to be successful, made them the greatest brand ambassadors for everything that I was selling as a candidate. And so literally that second time I ran, two years after the first time, the same district that I lost by two hundred and ninety eight votes, I won by three thousand and three votes, and so it was a big, big win and I became the first African American in history to ever represent my district and I was the first Democrat in twenty five years to represent this area, so it wasn 't a democratic area at all; it was a heavily republican area and 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 I found that I had something in common with the people and and we Focus on the things that we agreed on, and I supported them and added value to them. And again, they became my biggest sales agents because they could talk in places where I couldn't go and to people who wouldn't give me five minutes for time a day. And because of that, I was able to get them to the disposition, either yes or no. And that's all that I wanted is to have more yeses at the end of the day than I had no's.
0: Such a such a great story and, and so many different directions to go, my mind is is, is going uh, a million miles, miles an hour on where to take this. So I w- but I want to take it with the, the, the concept of those change agents who are working on your behalf, right? Regardless of what we see in the media, people get into politics because they want to make change. They want to help people. They want to support people. But in order to do it, it's not necessarily about your personal message. It's about getting other people to want to advocate for you. And in business, our employees, if, if you work for a 10,000 person or a 20,000 person business, the CEO of that company needs those people on the front lines to support the vision. Yes. You needed it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, how you go about doing that as a leader, whether it's in politics or whether it's in business? How do you get those people on the front lines to buy into what you want to do?
1: Yeah, this is... This is very simple, and this is actually the core of what I teach in every leadership training. Every place that I go, I teach these three principles. And and for your listeners and for you, I want you to understand that these three questions that I'm about to state are the same questions that every customer is asking when they encounter your business. These are the same questions that every employee that works at your organization is asking when they show up to work every day. And they're asking the CEO these questions and they're asking their frontline manager or supervisor these same questions. Every customer wants to know, every employee wants to know. And guess what? Every person that's listening to me is asking you and I the same question, Adam. And here are the three questions. Question number one is, do you care about me? Question number two, is will you help me and question number three is can I trust you and so those questions are getting asked subliminally by every person every day they will never verbalize those questions but that's what they're asking and how you answer that question not with your words but how you answer that question with your actions determines if you're going to have the loyalty and the motivation from those frontline employees or those mainstay customers to go out and be evangelists for whatever you're selling, for whatever you believe in, whatever you're trying to move. You have to be able to answer those three questions with your actions. So your customers and your employees wanna know, do you care about me? Is this product something that you care about what I'm dealing with or what I'm pained about? And then the second question is, will you help me to be successful? Everybody wants to be successful. So whether I'm buying um, a crutch to help me with my bad knee, I wanna be successful, or whether I'm buying a large consulting package to help me to move into a new market in the Far East, I wanna know, is the consulting gonna help me to be successful? So it doesn't matter what you are, are selling, the customer wants to know, the employee wants to know, will you help me to be successful at what I wanna do. And then that third question is, can I trust you? Can I trust you're gonna have my back? Can I trust you're not gonna disappear in the middle of the night? Can I trust that you're not gonna go back on your word and violate all of the principles that I believe about you? Those fundamental three simple questions are how you get people bought in to the vision, to the values and the goals that you, you set out for yourself. So whether you're running for Congress or dog catcher or whether you're growing a brand that's in the, you know, network marketing space or whether you're growing a a Fortune 500 company to make it a Fortune 5 company, your customers, your employees, your suppliers, your vendors, everybody is asking, do you care about me? Will you help me? And can I trust you? And when you answer with your actions, your business actions, and your personal actions as a leader. When you answer yes to those questions, you can move people in ways that other people wouldn't believe to be possible. It's how you build the inspiration. It is how you inspire and empower people. It is how you get people sold out on the vision to make happen whatever you want to make happen. It's because you show them that you care, that you want to help them, and that you're trustworthy. Those are the tenets of leadership.
0: And Anton has that and more on his, on his website at Uh Also has courses and, and ways that you can engage and, and, and help your business, help your community, help your employees. We're talking with Anton Gunn on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. Anton, I like how you make it, made it so easy with the care, help, and trust questions, whether it's your employees, whether it's your customers, whether it's your community. And right now, in America we're seeing those questions be asked loud and clear we're going through a lot of of social change and business owners and, and a lot of white business owners are having to ask themselves these questions are their employees cared for are they helping them can they can the owner be trusted and people are looking to business leaders for those answers not just to to do things because the Economy or the, the marketplace is telling them to but doing it by asking themselves those questions. Yes, not just the clients So how how are you seeing that transformation take place? Obviously the the, the media is part of it, but you've written articles you've um, You've done this in the marketplace. How are you seeing business leaders? transform by by using th- those same three questions
1: yeah, so so I would say um, I'm seeing a lot of stuff happen right now. And uh, I probably get a call a day from a CEO of a, a major organization uh, asking the question. So the, the main question that they're asking is, have I really cared about all of my employees and my customers? And that's a very innocent, simple, self-reflected question is if you think about who buys from you, have you demonstrated to them that you care about them. And, and if, you know, all of us have customers in all kinds of ways and they all look all kinds of races and genders and backgrounds and everything else. So the question is, do you care about your customers? But if you really wanted to look internal and you're a a company that has plus 50 employees, do I care about my employees? And do any of my employees that may be African-American or of some other person of color. What has been their experience inside of my company? And do I even know what that experience is? Have I even wanted to know? And what I found more than not is that in the past, most executives have no idea. And when I say have no idea, it's what I call living in oblivion, that they don't do employee engagement surveys, or if they have done one, they haven't done one in five or 10 years. So they have no idea how engaged their workforce is. Um, they they look at turnover rate but they don't really examine why people are leaving their organization and so I would say you got about fifty percent of business owners who are what I call living in oblivion they're blind to injustice they're blind to what might be going on socially right now so they didn't even know that racism is real or that that there's a disparity in how uh, black men get treated by police they just didn't see it it was not important to them because they haven't experienced it and they don't know anybody that's experienced it. So they've kind of been living in oblivion. And then you have about 35% of business owners who are aware of that injustice or that inequity and saw the problem, but felt like it was somebody else's responsibility to do something about it. That I run a business and so I'm not political. So therefore I shouldn't do anything about it. Or maybe they even says, you know what? I want to do something about it, but the problem is so big that I feel powerless that there's nothing that I can do. and so. You got 50% of business owners who are living in oblivion, another 35% who know better, but don't do better because they don't think that they can or they don't have the tools to do so. And then you have a small percentage. This is what I call the the evil 10%. Not everybody, but just 10% of them who may feel like, you know what, I'm good with social injustice or I'm good with things the way they are because I benefit socially, morally, politically, economically from things staying just like they are, the status quo staying like it is. I mean, imagine if you are a, you know, manufacturer of high-end military and law enforcement equipment. You know, you love the fact that the police think the way they do because you get to sell more shields and face guards and tear gas and everything else. And your business might be up right now because of what's going on in America. And so you want to reinforce it because you benefit from it. Now, that's not the majority at all but it's a small 10% who think they benefit. So between that, you have 95% of business owners that fall on that continuum. But I spend my time teaching and training the 5%. And that is, how do you become a leader that no matter what you see, when you become aware of injustice, you do something to make it right? You make it right with your customers, you make it right with your employees, You make it right with the community that you're in because you feel like that I have the ability to do something and I'm gonna do it. I may not be able to do everything, but I can do something. And so what we need are more leaders who are in that 5% who model the behaviors of what I call the most admired leaders, the most admired business leaders, the most admired social leaders, the most admired political leaders are the ones who decide that they're gonna get involved, that they see the injustice, and know that they can do something about it and they work to educate the 50% of leaders who don't know that something is wrong and then they work to empower the 35% who know something is wrong but don't feel they have the ability to do something and then all of us work together to make the 10% feel completely uncomfortable that it's not a right thing or not a good thing to leave injustice as a status quo and so That's what I call the social conscious construct. I've been teaching that, and it'll be featured in my next book that won't be out until next year, but I'm working on it now, and um, got building some case studies attached to that, that we have to have leaders who answer the questions, I care about you, I'm willing to help you, and you can trust that I'm going to make it right. And I can't do everything But there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And I'm always going to figure out the one thing that I can do. And what I'm starting to see is the calls that I'm getting from CEOs. They want to know what can they do to make it right. And some of them have been living in oblivion. But now they've been awakened by what they saw on the news or what their employees told them. I mean, some CEOs wanted to know, do we really have a problem here? And those employees actually told them, yes, we have a problem. I've been here 20 years and I trained everybody who's now my boss and I can't get a promotion. And I feel like it's because of the color of my skin. And so the question is, when you hear that, what do you do next? Do you show that person that you care about them, you're willing to help them, and that they can trust that you're gonna do something to make it right? That's the, the premise of, of my professional career.
0: And I, I appreciate you being so open about what you've seen, what, what, who you're helping. But I wanna ask a question, what, what I'm hearing is if, if we take the, the, the racial side out of it, and, and I know you can't, but for, for two seconds, if we take the racial side out of it, what I'm hearing is, is there's a lack of understanding, right? The, the leaders don't understand. Now, what's, what, we're, what we're living in and what we are all understanding is that there's a huge racial component to it in, in America. There's this huge underlying theme that people ignored or were blind to or didn't know what to do the 85 percent you were talking about it you were yeah. talking about but but does it start with understanding i'm not, I'm not trying to oversimplify it but yeah. if you understand your people better if you understand your customer better regardless of what their their color is yeah i think that's a that's a big deal right
1: so here here's what I, before you even get to understanding Um, It's really about simple awareness. Like, you know, like I'll use a a business example. Like you could want to start a business and you could say, you know what, I'm going to start a business in, um, you know, the retail sector, because I think people spend a lot of money and they're going to make a lot of money. If I, if I open up a business in the retail sector, I'm going to make a lot of money. So you're aware of the retail sector, but how many other sectors exist in America for you to make money. I mean, there are hundreds of sectors for you to make money or hundreds of businesses you could start, but you're only aware of one. But the most successful business owner is the one who looks at the full landscape of the marketplace and say, you know what? Yeah, I want to do a retail business, but I'm not really passionate about that. What I'm passionate about is real estate. And so maybe I don't want to do retail sales, but maybe I want to do Real estate sales. And so, my full context is you can take race out of it, you can take gender out of it, you can take all of those things out of it, but it all boils down to what does your mind's eye tell you about the landscape? What are you even aware of? Because you can be aware of something and not understand it. Like, you can be aware of, you know, women are 80% of the healthcare workforce but they're not in leadership, they're not CEO. So you're aware that that's a situation, but do you understand why it got to be that way and why it is that way and what's going on with it? So the second level would be that understanding. So awareness and then understanding is where all business owners should try to get to. Every entrepreneur should be is do I have an awareness and understanding of what may be wrong? And so again, I talk to a lot of employers who, don't, who aren't aware of the incivility that happens in their workplace, where people are just not being kind to each other. Like they, they see the reality TV and they come to work and they take on the character roles of whoever they've seen in reality TV. So everybody has a Richard on Survivor who everybody hates because he antagonizes everybody else because it's all about him trying to get to the top. And when you, when you have that kind of person in your workforce, it starts to breed a toxic culture that leads to turnover, it leads to absenteeism, it leads to people saying, hey, I don't wanna work here anymore. And it has nothing to do with race, but it just has the fact that incivility is real in the workplace. And I did a, a study recently that I'm gonna publish soon. Uh, I surveyed 1000 people in the top five industries and nearly 90% of them said that they've all experienced incivility in the workplace. And when probing a little bit more deeply, is their leader aware of that incivility? About 50% of them says the leaders are aware of the incivility, but they haven't done anything about it. So having awareness is a start. Understanding is the next step. But the key is you got to take action and do something about it. And it doesn't matter what it is. Um, you, use the example of, of us eating dinner at a restaurant. And you know, I've been waiting for a table for an hour and a half. And you walk into the restaurant, five minutes later, I, I mean, uh, after I've been there an hour and a half, and you get seated at the first table that, that you walked in to get. Well, I feel like I've been treated unfairly because I've been waited, waiting for an hour and a half, but you got a table immediately. And so the question is, were you even aware that I've been waiting an hour and a half? And if you were aware, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be selfish and just take that table and enjoy your dinner? and wait for me, let me wait for the next table? Or are you gonna say to the manager, sir, um, I know I just showed up and you wanna give me this table, but that guy's been waiting an hour and a half, give him that table and I'll take your next one available. So even has nothing to do with race, it has everything to what happens to us when we go to our favorite restaurants in town. Sometimes people get missed when they're waiting on a table if they don't have a good system to to manage the tables And, and bad things happen, mistakes happen. Unfairness happens, but the question is, everybody in that scenario has the opportunity to do something to make it right. And that's what leaders need to be doing.
0: Wow. Um, you know, it, it's rare, it's rare that, that I have a guest that makes something so, so good that I don't have a follow-up question for it. Um, <laughs> so I, I appreciate the way that you laid that out. I think it's, not, I, I was, you know, picturing the deli counter yes. that, uh, you know, Every day at the deli counter, somebody yep. walks up and
1: every nine times out of
0: 10, they're like, oh, sorry, I think this yes. person was here first. But that one person just goes ahead and orders or is, and everyone else sort of stews about it.
1: Yep. They uh, ordered their boar, boar's head turkey or roast beef and they take it <laughs> and they walk right out of the door and not caring anyone else. And so if you, again, using my scenario, if that was 10 people, it's only going to be one person that's going to be that bad actor. The other, you know, five five people may be oblivious to the whole thing and it will just stand there and wait in line to whenever they get served. And then you're going to have three people who are going to see that go wrong and be like, you know, that ain't the right thing to do. But maybe it's not my place. Maybe the manager should speak up about this person who cut the line and got their boar's head turkey before everybody else. But there's going to be one person who says, you know what, that's wrong. These people were here first and we should let them go. And that's what I want is that one person who's willing to do the right thing all the time and be the most admired leader in that moment.
0: That's so, so important. And uh, this next question could be a whole show in and of itself, but hopefully we can break it down in just a minute or two. That one person, that one bad actor, how do we determine or how can we help determine whether that person is just oblivious themselves? They walked up to the deli counter and they're not a bad person. They just literally were not paying attention. Someone said, hey, what do you want? And they order their boar's head roast beef. Uh, and I do love boar's head roast beef versus that person that's more intentional about it. Uh, when we talk about injustice, I, it, it's possible that some people who are flat out just blind to what they're doing get branded as bad people. How, how do we manage that? Or, or how do you think about that? I guess it's a better question. Yeah.
1: So uh, great question. And I would say it really breaks down to this. We all make mistakes, but if we never get called on our mistakes, then we won't ever know that we're making a mistake. We might think that we're doing the right thing. And so for me, a big part of addressing that 10% who are the bad actors and separating, um, separating out the people who just don't know, it starts with those of us who have some level of awareness is making them aware. Making them, uh, asking the question, did you know what you did was wrong? And if they say to you, yeah, I knew what I did was wrong, but I did it anyway because it felt good then they're clearly categorizing themselves into the 10%. But if you ask them, did you know what you did was wrong? And they say, oh, I am sorry. I did not know it was wrong. I I wasn't aware of that. They want to find a way to make it right. They want to find a way to get themselves in a position. So when they say they didn't know it was wrong, then your opportunity is then to educate them about what's the right thing. Well, the line forms right here or the line starts back here, or, you know, this is how we do things here, so you don't make that mistake again. And again, everybody can be educated. I never write anybody off. You know, ignorance is a disease, but it's curable. And and I'm not saying that people are ignorant on purpose, but I'm saying when you don't have an understanding about something, um, there's a cure for that. And it's called awareness, education, and understanding. And... The best leaders that I've learned from, the leaders who I've I've grown the most from over my career are the business leaders and entrepreneurs who recognize their job is to always be learning. They're in a learning mode and they build a learning culture in your your organization. That's where innovation comes from. Innovation comes from trying new ideas and learning from those ideas. And so the most innovative businesses, the ones who are most successful are the ones who build a learning culture. And we can build a learning culture for how we treat each other, how we treat people, how we treat our customers, how we treat our competitors. I mean, I've learned a lot about generosity that I don't really have competitors in business. I don't care if you speak on the same subject, you consult with the same type of people. I don't have competitors, I have partners. And and if I understand what's important to you and I find a way to help you, you'll never categorize me in the 10%. You'll always categorize me in the 5% of leaders who would do everything in my power to make it right. Because I believe all of us can win. That doesn't have to be a win-lose scenario. It's a win-win scenario. And that's the approach that I believe the best businesses have is they recognize, you know, once we figure out what we do best, nobody else can do it. So there's no point of trying to look at people as competition. They just are different than we are. And that's how everybody can win.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. And thanks for having this conversation. In, in a business context, right? It, it's easy to get, to get caught up in the emotion of it and what, what we see on the news, but to think about it from a business perspective and how can you have a better business by being more aware, by being a better at understanding, by showing people that, you, people that you care, help, and trust. Anton, I really appreciate uh, the, the knowledge, the depth, and, and helping all of us learn a little bit more about how we can utilize this in our business and lives.
1: Well, very happy to help you. And of course, I'm happy to connect with, with any of your listeners. You can definitely go to my homepage at antongun.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where I spend a lot of my time with business owners and business leaders is on LinkedIn. I'm almost at uh, 17,000 um, contacts on LinkedIn now. And uh, it's a great place to find dialogue and, and read articles about how we can be better leaders and better business owners and service our customers in a better way and become the admired leader that every customer and every employee deserves to have.
0: I love it. And we'll, I'll put Anton's uh, LinkedIn link in the, uh, in the show notes. so You can just click on it and connect with him there. Last question for me, how the heck do you get to be a senior advisor to the president of the United States?
1: <laughs> so um, that's, that's about being first. So this is another <laughs> entrepreneurial trait is, um, I got to Barack Obama before he had secret service protection before uh, he was even a presidential candidate. And I, I called him on the phone. I literally phone banked him 10 times until I got somebody on his team to actually call me back or have him call me back. And when I got him on the phone, I told him, you don't know this, but you need me involved in, in your campaign. And if you hire me, it might be the best decision you ever make. So I literally had to sell a product that I hadn't built. I had to sell myself uh, as an expert or as a value add to his campaign. And he took a chance on me. He believed in me and I delivered and I continued to deliver. And because of that, that's how the level of trust grew that I was brought into his administration to help do some things that they knew I had a skill set and expertise in order to be able to do. And that was to help people understand how to get health insurance coverage. That's how I got it done.
0: That's awesome. And I I appreciate your time. I appreciate that story and everything you're doing. Thanks, Anton. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. And thanks, everyone, for being here and listening to this uh, episode of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast.
1: You've been listening to the
0: Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business at www.freebookfromadam.com.